Welcome, everybody. Um, so last week, um, as Ant explained, we're doing this gospel-shaped outreach course over the next nine weeks. And last week, uh, we did the first session, which is how are we doing, which basically was just exploring uh, where are we at in terms of evangelism? How do we see that and how do we feel we can ourselves uh, be those that are messengers of this wonderful good news. So today um, we're going to do the second session, which is who is Jesus? And uh, this has to be the central question for us as we think about evangelism over the next few weeks. Who is Jesus? Because while many of his contemporaries from the first century have faded into the dusty archives of history, Jesus of Nazareth remains extremely popular. When you type Jesus into a Google web search, it turns over one billion pages of references to Jesus. There are over 350,000 current news stories referring to Jesus in some form or another at the moment as well. And if I went, when I went on to check on Twitter to see who and what people are talking about, I discovered that there are literally thousands of people every single minute tweeting about Jesus. The name of Jesus is in the news, it's in movies, it's in hospitals, places of worship, just about everywhere. He's trending. In fact, references to Jesus are as common today probably as a Nike symbol at an athletics meeting. He seems to be everywhere. Donald Trump has recently popularized that phrase fake news to refer to trumped up information that has no basis for truth as part of his propaganda machine at the White House. However, I want to say that there is a lot of fake news about Jesus. If you ask people on the street, who is Jesus? They would probably give you lots of different answers that probably wouldn't all add up. I remember when Ant and I were on a mission trip to Hong Kong in the 1990s. Um, we were going out doing some street evangelism and I saw a man in the street and I went to him and I asked him if he knew who Jesus was. And he looked at me very thoughtfully and he said, I don't know, um, but if you go around the corner to that shop, I think they may be able to help you find him over there. I realize that not everyone has heard about the name of Jesus. Um, Jonah's going to just put up a, a little YouTube clip of a New York Street survey, which is very interesting. People were asked who they think Jesus is. We're just going to watch this briefly. It's interesting because there are many Mer Americans, but there are a lot of people from all over the world, and these are their responses. So you can see there's a lot of kind of, I suppose there's some cynicism there. There's people kind of thinking, well, I actually haven't thought about it. I know who Jesus is, but actually if you ask me, I don't really know if I've got an answer. And if you look at this next slide uh, with some artistic impressions of Jesus, maybe uh, you've seen some of these pictures before, people trying to capture who they think Jesus is. There's that very saccharine, sweet Jesus with a halo behind his head. There's the film star, good-looking Jesus. And then there's the honest, earthy, hard-working carpenter's face. Who is the real Jesus? Um, he's popular, but the question remains, who is he? 
And so maybe what I want us to do as we go forward today is to try and get to grips with the real Jesus, the one that we can say is declared in the Bible, the one that we are called to know and to meet intimately. So the, here is some, a few little historical facts about the real Jesus. Jesus was a historical fact, uh, figure who lived 2,000 years ago, and the primary source of his life and ministry is the New Testament. And, and there are eyewitnesses and people who wrote their testimony um, that are recorded in this document. And another historical fact about Jesus is that he was a miracle worker. Both friends and foe testify to the fact that he was able to do astounding, um, miraculous healings and other things that, such as multiplying the, the, the fish and the loaves, all kinds of amazing things, walking on water. And then all four Gospels testify to the fact that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. And there are also extra-biblical sources that um, confirm that this actually happened. It's also clear that Jesus died and he was buried. And yet, it also says that the tomb was empty on Easter morning. And the disciples testify that Jesus the disciples of Jesus testified that they saw him alive after his death. So Jesus is possibly the most controversial figure in human history, and yet for Christians, he's the central figure of all eternity. Within Orthodox Christian views, the truth, the view remains, as it is from the beginning, that Jesus has divine authority to judge all people. There are not many historical figures who kind of pack that clout of saying they're here to judge all mankind. In fact, I don't think with any credibility that there are over a billion people throughout the world believing Jesus to be the judge of all people. That's absolutely amazing today that we have that. So who exactly is he? And as we progress to do this course, we want to ask that question because we, want to don't, we don't want to contribute to all the noise and the controversy about Jesus. We don't want to add confusion to the conversation. We want to be ourselves. We want to know who, who God is through his uh, son, Jesus. So the first thing I want to say is that Jesus is God in the flesh. And the Bible teaches us that God has two natures. It is one of the most difficult concepts to fully grasp. Jesus is fully God, 100%, and he is holy man, 100%. So how can both of these things be true? The quick answer for us as Christians is because the Bible tells us that. And one of the things that we need to also wrestle with as we go out to speak and proclaim about Jesus is that do we as Christians hold to the centrality and the authority of the word of God for its how it declares and reveals Jesus to us. So the word of God declares to us that this is who he is. But that doesn't remove the mystery of it, however. Uh, something can be true, um, but doesn't necessarily mean we understand how it works. How many of us here, if you want to put up your hand, own a car or are able to drive a car? Okay, that's a lot of people. How many of you understand very clearly how an internal combustion engine works. Okay, 
like, oh, I'm impressed. <laughs> so there are a few of you do. But it takes for most of us a lot of faith to, we put our uh, key in the ignition, we turn the key and the, and the car drives, it moves off without us really fully understanding the mechanics of it. And it's the same thing for us as we understand who Jesus is. There's a mystery around his nature, but we know that he is, was completely God and completely man. And although we cannot fully understand how that was worked out. You see, the scriptures declare that Jesus doesn't have a beginning. He is eternal with God. When Jesus spoke to some of the hostile Jewish leaders, he said that he predated Abraham. In John 8 verse 58, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. An amazing statement, considering that Abraham lived and died 2,000 years beforehand. In John 1, we learn that Jesus existed before the creation of the world and that he, in fact, was the means by which God brought the whole world into being. In John 1, verse 1 to 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made thing made that was made. So Jesus has some profound um, things that he's declared about himself. At the same time, he had an actual body. He ate. We see he cooked breakfast for his disciples even after he was resurrected. He got his feet dirty. He slept. He wept. He physically touched people. He was fully human. The Apostle Paul puts these two things together in Colossians 2, he says in verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. We believe as Christians that God is three persons in one. This refers to the tri-unity of God. And the old formulations of Christian doctrine, the creeds, make it clear that there's one being or essence of God with three distinct co-eternal persons who are equal in power and glory. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who make up this trinity. There is one being that is God with these three distinct co-equal, co-eternal persons. And Jesus himself, being very God, became human to come and save sinners like you and me. I know this is a little bit of a trite parable or example of a, or to help us see it, but imagine you were walking along a path one day and you saw in the sky, it was completely black and the, the clouds were building and you knew there was going to be this pouring downpour and, and rain that would come. And as you're walking along, you see all these little ants scurrying along, carrying their food, going, and you know when the rain comes, it's going to just wash those ants away and all their hard work's going to be washed away. And you think, oh, come on ants, and you try and kick them to get into their hole. Or I don't know what you do. You try and chivy them along and say, these ants aren't getting it. If only I could become an ant, then I'll tell them with an ant language that there's a great big storm coming. 
I know it's a silly example, but it's a bit like that. God said, I will become a man so that they can hear and know the way to the Father. They can know who I am by going myself to be with them, to explain to them who I am and to be God to them because I am God. So Jesus is God in the flesh. And it's so important for us that when we are going out telling people about who God is, that we do understand we are proclaiming a mystery. And I know that I have used scriptural quotes to support what I've said. And the whole thing of apologetics is how you reason your Christian faith, how you explain it to people. And maybe that's something of what we'll do over this course is looking at ways to help explain these wonderful mysteries. But for us, we need to be convinced of those firstly for ourselves, that we really know that Christ came as fully God and fully man to be here amongst us and to help us find God for ourselves by embodying, um, being the embodiment of God to us. Then the second thing I want to say is Jesus is the resurrected King. Whenever we read the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we see that they always end on the high note of the resurrection. And we also see that the resurrection always conveys an element of surprise in the disciples. And sure, they were very surprised that Jesus came back to life again, especially when we read the story of the road to Emmaus, and we've got these disciples walking along, and Jesus joins them, and they're telling him about this terrible thing that's happened, that Jesus has died, and they had so much hope that he was going to be the one that would save them and redeem Israel, and they don't even realize that they're actually talking to Jesus, and suddenly they see. But you see, they shouldn't really have been surprised because time and time again Jesus predicts his betrayal and death but also his resurrection and in the New Testament whenever the writers of the New Testament look at this thing of Jesus resurrection they mention it for a few reasons and I'm just going to mention four of them but I, what I would like to say if you'd like to think uh, understand this a little bit more deeply um, just before Easter entered a four-part series on the resurrection which I thought was really outstanding so you welcome to go and listen to the podcast to get a more in-depth understanding of this but um, in 1 Corinthians 15 Paul reminds the Christians that just as Jesus was raised from the dead so too do everyone who believes in him, we too will be raised from the dead. Isn't that a good reason to believe in that? Isn't that amazing? Uh, Paul says, and if Christ has been raised, your, if he has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still lost in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are also lost. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. That's quite a powerful statement. If, if all of this Christian life is just about having a nice life here, then what are we doing? <laughs> There's something so amazing because Christ rose from the dead because he conquered the grave. That was for us too. This is not it. This isn't as good as it gets. It gets much better. We've got an eternal future with Jesus. So that's the first thing that we have joy in because of the resurrected Christ. And the second thing is we have the old Apostle John who kind of was eventually um, 
banished to the island of Patmos. He was imprisoned there, and he has this incredible revelation of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and we read about that in the book of Revelation. And he has these words that he says. It's almost like he saw in his mind's eye Christ coming, the resurrected King, and he says, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And then he proclaims these words of Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So John had this amazing, victorious picture of Christ coming to restore his order and his reign on that final day when he when he returns. And then in 1 Peter, we have another amazing thing, that's the resurrection of Christ. This resurrected King gives us hope right now for our lives. And that is when we're going through tough times, we are able to endure because of the hope that we have in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And he goes on to say, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials, but these have come to prove the genuineness of your faith. And he goes on to say, Because you're receiving the salvation of your souls. Persevere in these things because there's a great and wonderful reward at the end. God, Jesus has conquered death and in that he's given us victory even over the hardest and the most difficult things that we're going through. And I want to encourage you this morning for your life, whatever you are going through, hang in there. The best is yet to come. Remember, we are, we are sojourners on this earth. We are passing through. But God, we are going to be for eternity. This is our lives here, and eternity goes on forever. We have an eternal, wonderful life in heaven with Jesus. And you might say, well, that doesn't really comfort me with what I'm going through right now. But I think it's so important that we cultivate a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective of our lives, because it puts everything into perspective that we are able to get through even the hardest things because we know Christ is with us and he will reward us in our perseverance and he's shaping a faith in us that is deep and true. And the last thing I want to say about the resurrection is that it reminds us that Christ is with us as we go out and tell of the wonderful things that he's done. And you probably all know this wonderful scripture in Matthew. It says, And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Isn't that amazing? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why it's such a powerful story that Nicolene shared this morning about baptism provoking such a response in people, either to, to actually say, I don't want to engage with this, or to say, actually, this is calling me to acknowledge something that I know is true that God has done in my life. 
Um, and Jesus says that, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Because of his resurrection, he says, As you go out and tell others about me, know that I am with you. I have not left you. I am with you by my spirit, and I will give you the power that you need. So Jesus has all authority. He is enthroned. He is reigning as king of kings. And Jesus is God's powerful, death-conquering, eternally reigning king. And the gospel message at its most simple, simplest is this. Jesus is the risen king who has defeated death and has made a way for us to enjoy the same eternal life. The resurrection is central to the message of what we proclaim. So the first thing that we said is that Jesus is God in the flesh. The second thing we said that Jesus is the resurrected king. And the third thing I want to say is that Jesus is the truth-telling Lord. Now some of you might have heard this argument before. I, I remember learning it at school. But C.S. Lewis popularized the argument that Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or he was the Lord. And the reasoning went as follows. First, if he claims to be God, and yet in fact is not, then he's probably a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he's neither God nor a lunatic, then he has to just be a liar, deceiving others by his lie. And the third, if he's neither a lunatic nor a liar, then one has to conclude he must be the Lord. He must be God. Jesus said when he was on earth, he said that he had the authority to raise himself up from the dead. Now, if someone walked around today saying that, you would say, that's a madman. That's a lunatic. They're just deceived. They're a liar. And this is what Jesus said in John 10. He said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay my life down and I may, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Clearly, Jesus said and did things that only God can do. Does this make him a liar or a lunatic? Or do we have to conclude that he is in fact God and we can trust his word. See, if we are to be people who speak his words to others, we have to be convinced that his words are true and trustworthy. We have good evidence that in his, that, um, in his fulfilled, uh, excuse me, we have got good evidence that all the predictions that were made about Jesus came true. Things that were predicted thousands of years before he existed, they came true. But we've also got evidence that his words so accurately diagnose our own hearts. When you read the words of Jesus, you are cut to the, to the core because they speak truth into our very being. We discover that when we're reading Jesus' words, they're actually reading us. His words pierce our hearts and show us what we are truly like. And his words can fill us with hope and comfort. Well, last night, um, I woke up, I don't know what time it was, about three in the morning, 
I don't know, I might, maybe I, my arm was dead. I'd slept on my arm, I can't remember, but I woke up. And I had this, these words just drop straight into my spirit as I woke up. And I didn't feel like it was for me, but I felt God was speaking to some people here this morning. And just those words he said, Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time you will receive a reward. Do not give up. And I, I don't know who that's for this morning. I just felt the Lord say, that's for someone that here this morning. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time you will receive a reward. Perhaps you've been just persevering, persevering, thinking, what is this all for? But the Lord is saying, he sees your efforts, he sees your perseverance, and he's saying, you will, res- you will see the results of all that you're sowing. You will receive your reward. And I don't believe that's just in heaven one day. It's to see the fruit of your work here. Then the next thing I want to say about Jesus is that Jesus is the sin-bearing Savior. It's important to know who Jesus is, but it's also important to know what he has done. What did Jesus do? In short, Jesus brought reconciliation between two warring parties. And the Bible teaches us that we were alienated from God because of our sin and our rebellion, and that separates a holy God from us. And remember, Adam and Eve were required to be perfectly obedient to God, but upon their failure to do so, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And the consequence of our sin is death. So what are some of the possible options for reconciliation between a holy God and sinful people? And you might encounter, if you asked um, people on, like in that street survey in, in New York, they might give you some of these answers. Well, first of all, we could say, well, God, you're so loving. Why don't you just compromise and forgive everyone? And many people think this is what God is like and that's what he will do. They hope that somehow, despite being sinful, it's just all going to be all right in the end. Somehow life's just going to work out okay. And we know from the Bible and from Jesus' teachings that this is a false hope. And secondly, we can attempt to atone for our own sin and try very hard to be perfect going forward. And this is the way of religion. People think that by hard work, religious duty, being morally down the line and straight and correct, they can make up for past misdeeds and be reconciled to God. But we know from the Bible and from Jesus' teaching that this is also a false hope. Religion is a false hope, whatever that religion is. Well, thirdly, we can have someone who's qualified and able to step in for us. Someone who will bear the cost of our rebellion in our place by grace. This is the only real hope that we have. And Jesus Christ's whole mission was to take our place. As a man, he's qualified to stand in our place perfectly because he lived a perfect life. But as our God, he's also qualified to stand in our place victoriously because he is able to overcome death. So in the up and coming sessions that we're going to do, we'll discuss this in more detail, this 
wonderful story of reconciliation of how God reconciles us to him. But I just want to quote um, Peter, who was himself, he was a, a very interesting character when you read his story in the Bible. I think he was a headstrong man. He had, he kind of was always putting his foot in it and making mistakes. And this is something he said. He said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Through the gospel, Jesus brings the unrighteous to God and he brings the lost, alienated rebels home. The last thing I want to say about Jesus is Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. Now, that's a very unfashionable thing to say culturally, um, to talk about Jesus in terms of being exclusive. Any claim to be absolute to have a binding state of morality or religion or, or just saying this is what I believe is an absolute truth is strongly resisted in our culture. We live in a postmodern culture. The modern culture, which is maybe where people in my generation grew up, we had absolutes, we thought we could fix the world and make it a better place with truths. And that has been abandoned in the most postmodern culture where everything has become fragmented and there's a sense of truth is what is right for me. And so these things begin to challenge our culture when we start saying that there is one way to God. However, as Christians, we don't have the creative freedom to accommodate the Bible's message to the tastes of our culture. Sure, we do need to tell it in a way that is appropriate and people can relate to, but we must tactfully, boldly, faithfully and lovingly speak the truth of who Jesus is. Here are a sampling of a few verses from the Bible. Listen to them carefully and just feel the weight of what they're teaching us. Acts 4 verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. John 14 verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 3 verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And finally, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just one way. He is the only way to God. That's very uncomfortable in a postmodern culture. And even for us as Christians today, I wonder how much of that has begun to unsettle us, to declare that, to say that Jesus is the one and only way to God the Father. The Bible's declaration is broad. All have sinned, but its answer is narrow. Christ is the only way. You see, I don't know that we have to get people talking about Jesus. He's everywhere. 
But we do have to be sure that we are talking about the real Jesus, the one the Bible reveals to us as the sinless Son of God who died for our sins and rose again to give us eternal life. Very challenging, but let's ask God to reveal himself to us over these next few weeks. Let's say, Lord, maybe where my understanding of you has got sifted and watered down, restore me to the truth of your word. Let this be the plumb line. Let this be the reference point. Let this be what I build my belief in you on. Not a whole lot of, uh, what is that cartoon? We, we sometimes, that we were watching the family guy. That's not, that's not the gospel. But we can start to assimilate things about Jesus that's just fake news. Let us as Christians have a true understanding who Jesus is so we can accurately represent him because he is the answer to this world. He is the answer. Thank you.